You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. You're just joining us. We are on the series called Around the Table. Uh, Ross has the picture from last week, I don't know, but it's all uh, inspired out of this pottery barn table that um, my wife purchased a couple of years ago. I did some math. Uh, with a calculator and pen and paper, I have 15,000 more dinners uh, at that table, which is a lot, but not infinite amounts. And so um, a question stirred in my heart. This is uh, kind of over the summer. Um, how will I spend the hours at that table? How, I know who will probably be at the table, but how will the conversations go and, and what will be the focus and what will be the motive and what is it that goes on at our table? Um, and so what I've just kind of committed to do over this couple of weeks is to go through... Um, 10 different meals that happen in the book of Luke. There's 10 exact meals uh, that Jesus shares uh, with sinners like you and me. And ultimately, his purpose is the same, whether it's a Pharisee or tax collector or a prostitute or anybody that's in his company, is that every table is for sinners saved. That every table, there's something more than going on of what's on the table or keeping food on the table or keeping the lights on, but ultimately, that sinners like you and me would come, come to be saved. And so today, um, today, I wanted to talk about just this topic of, uh, of friends at the table. And so, um, uh, I don't know if you're like me, I kind of lament this reality. When I was a kid, it was so easy to make friends. Um, I moved in about three years old in Albany, New York, at this uh, street called Belvedere, and this little kid came out in his underwear named Anders, and, uh, and all we had to figure out is we were the same age and we were like best friends. I feel like if I moved in next to a guy that was the same age as me, and he'd come out in the yard and wave at me the wrong way. I'd be like, I hope this guy doesn't talk to me, you know? Uh, it's like we're so much more jaded as little kids, but that's like all it takes is like a certain demographic, and all of a sudden we've like hit it off and been pals, and, you know, I could probably just pick up with Anders just like where we left off right there, you know, at, at, at where we left off on Belvedere. Um, because, heaven help us, um, as we get older, uh, we get more awkward. Uh, and when it comes to making friends, particularly as guys, I routinely end up in situations where I'm trying to fist bump and shake, and I'm just like, what are we doing? Are we, where are we at? And I'm just, I feel like whatever it was that made us so easy to be friends when we were young is like the exact opposite. Old people, unlike kids, are busy, you know? Old people like you and me, um, you know, on a busy day, if I'm leaving at five as opposed to four, I might get caught in an hour of traffic. Uh, old people, you know, like you and me, um, you know, go to sleep at 10. I look on my little sleep app. I go to sleep at 10 and wake up at 6 every morning. Like, I don't even have time to sleep and drink water for crying out loud. Old people are full of opinions. Let me figure this out. Uh, opinions um, that, you know, when I walk down my cul-de-sac anymore, gosh, if I saw some of my underwear, I'd probably just call the police, you know. It's kind of what I would do. Um, but, you know, you see the wrong bumper sticker on somebody's thing, and you're like, I already know where this is headed. Like, I'm not wasting my time with this person. I know where they're going. I'm too busy, right? I have the opinions. I'm busy. And old people have baggage. Old people have been burned before, uh, you know, here and there. And so we just don't have time for it. And so there's, it's, not just, it's not just coincidental. I think it's, it's chronic. It's systemic why we are such a lonely culture and why we don't do friendship well. Um, but Jesus um, has this really uh, interesting moniker, uh, this really interesting nickname that people gave him uh, as he walked around and did his life. Uh, the people that saw Jesus, even the ones that didn't like him, called Jesus a friend to sinners, which is a pretty interesting title because, like, when you think about what Jesus did, he was mainly healing people and teaching people. I mean, right? You think about, okay, like, what is the basic 365 of Jesus' life? He's walking around and healing people and teaching people, but they didn't call him a healer of sinners. 
He prophesied to people and, and, and fully fulfilled and interpreted the law right in front of people in the temple, and he did it without flinching, but they did not call him a prophet to sinners. They didn't call him a teacher to sinners. They called him a friend to sinners. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's like, oh, Jesus loves a good party and he likes to hang out with people and not, you know, he likes to become a sinner. It doesn't say he's a party or he becomes a sinner. It just means he's a friend of sinners. It means he doesn't just care for sinners, but he shares with them. He ate and he drank with sinners like you and me. And so um, up there on the screen, I tried to like put this to language, put this to words of like what it looks like when you go and see like his, his everyday life. Like what does it mean that he ate and drank with sinners? Uh, the way that it came, came to my mind with, with words was um, Jesus extended seasons of personal relationship with people. Like he didn't just like walk by people, but he stopped, he got to know their name and he shared with them. But then he also would move on. He would go from place to place, from town to town. And so he wasn't family with sinners. He wasn't just a caretaker of sinners, but he was a friend of sinners, at least for seasons. Secondly, that Jesus was not codependent. He, his mission was not to come and heal the world, make it a better place. His mission was to make disciples and to be with the ready, not just with the urgent. And so he was okay with letting people walk. And so he would go from town to town, from place to place, and he would share. It wasn't just that he was the host where everyone was the guest. He would share. He would go to the house, and he would allow others to serve him too. He was interested in mutual give and take relationships. And last but not least, uh, Jesus was on a mission. He was missional, and, and everything, everything that he did led up to the best possible invitation you could give to a friend, which is he invited people to the gospel in a way that they could accept or reject it. And so um, I've been thinking, you know, uh, in my little journal of um, different people I've run into in the last couple of weeks, you know, around Thanksgiving time and the holidays, like, what is it, Mother Teresa says that the greatest epidemic of the Western world is loneliness, you know. So I ran into a 65-year-old guy, AutoZone, my brake light was out, Kyra called me, makes me late to work, you know, it's going to pull over to the old AutoZone, do the right thing. And uh, this guy, you ever just meet a guy that, like, can say, just has a sense of humor, a dry sense of humor, they say two words and make you laugh. I don't, you're probably not going to think it's funny, you know, because we reproduce the moment. But I'm like headed outside. I'm like, Oliver, are you going to be cold, man? He's like, I'm like, uh, you don't even have a jacket on. He goes, all in the mind, you know, is what he says to me. I just, and I just thought that was so funny to me. I was like, that's so funny. I'm going to say that at some point, maybe on a Sunday. And so, um, all in the mind, yeah. And so one thing leads to another. We start talking about the scripture. We start talking about church. And um, I, I ought to follow up with him. And he, I, Told him the time and place he was interested in coming out to City Lights one day. Uh, we ran into a lady just down the street on the serve day. We did like a donut drop off and a prayer walk with a bunch of people a couple Sundays ago and ran into a lady that moved here from Arizona. What kind of people go to your church? Like, how old are the people there? You know, like she's not asking me what denomination we are. She's like, are there people there that I can get to know? You know, um, another guy named Theo we met at the motel and talked to him in terms of getting work boots and getting him where he needs to be and so forth. The people that I meet, I don't know about you, but they're okay and happy about friendliness, but what they're looking for is friendship. At the end of those conversations, there's a sense of readiness for the gospel. The truth is, it's not that the harvest is scarce, the harvest is plentiful for the workers that can be friends of sinners. And so, and so here's the trick, is that people are hungry. They are hungry. They are eager for the gospel to come to them, but not in the form of a program and not in the form of charity. What people are eager for is friendship. 
People want relationship. And so it is, I think, that in church, like, as we follow the practice of Jesus, the practice of Jesus tells us that the harvest lives not in charity, but in friendship. It lives in relationship, right? And so the church is like, it's, it's easy to practice, it's easy to practice family because that's high commitment. Like, are you in or out? I'll give to you if you're in, right? So family is safe, right? I can do family with you and I can do charity to you. I can kind of jump over and drop off the little care package and just, just leave it. Like charity is a low risk analysis. But in between charity and family is this risky space called friendship. Because here's the reality. If I go from town to town, from place to place, and I call people into friendship, what's the reality? They don't have to receive it. They could reject it, right? And when I choose people, when I say Andrew or John or Peter or whoever that I'm choosing for a certain season, I'm also necessarily leaving somebody else out. And that's risky. The issue of give and take, the mutualism of friendship means that I'm not just the noble host and you're, you know, the needy guest. It means that I might give and you might not give back. You see, friendship means rejection, so friendship is risk, and so we can practice the charity and practice the family, but the friendship is where the harvest lives, and that's where things are most risky. At the end of the day, when I present the gospel to somebody, like, they don't have to accept it. They can reject it. And that is, I think, that is where the rubber hits the road and where the harvest can be plentiful, the workers can be few, and where we can go about doing other things than pursuing ultimately what Jesus did, which is friendship and the harvest. And so um, let me get out my, I forgot, I meant to bring my paper Bible and I messed up. So we're in Luke 19 and I want to walk through this passage together. Um, Forgive me here as you guys are ahead of me. So this is the story. There's three tables that I want to talk about this morning. And the very first story is about Zacchaeus. You guys ever heard of Zacchaeus before? It's got a little song that it's going to be hard for you not to think about. I don't know what it is. Never heard of it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through on his normal seasons of friendship encounters. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And so um, the truth of the matter is that uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but he was also a wicked kind of person. Jericho is essentially like uh, the Beverly Hills of the day. The location matters when you read through the scriptures like context. And so Jericho is a very rich area, and this was a very rich man. And so imagine how offensive it might be for Jesus to come into your town and the first person he meets with is Hugh Hefner, right? Because we assume that um, the gospel is for the poor and, you know, maybe it's for the poor to receive and accept middle-class values and the gospel is about helping poor people, right? But the gospel says that rich people need Jesus just as much as poor people and the gospel has come to meet this man, Zacchaeus. So ultimately, we're going to see in this next portion of the passage, really a visibility, a visual picture of what salvation looks like. Salvation is not for poor people to become middle class or rich people to wake up and start giving money to the poor or or left to become right or right to become left. Like the gospel is sinners to be saved. All different kinds of people and colors and backgrounds being broken, awakened to the fact that they're on their worst enemy and coming alive to be a sinner saved at his table. So this is what it looks like 
For this man, Zacchaeus, a visible picture of what grace through faith looks like so that no man would boast. In verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hey, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed them gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a friend of sinners. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So this is my little salvation chart that I see for uh, Zacchaeus, is that the gospel is this powerful thing, and it's, it's received for many of us in a moment of time, but it's also a slow journey. And so it looks something like this, and maybe you've been at this place before, maybe God's taking you to this place before right now, is that faith is climbing to the top of a sycamore tree and realizing that everything that you have is not enough. Faith is this journey where you are striving and trying and working to go get the good life on your own, but as tall as you can get yourself on a tree, you're still a short little man. And you can't get to where you're going. And so faith will meet this grace where Jesus comes into the scene and notice the invitation to Zacchaeus is not to climb higher, but to come down. I'm not up there, Zacchaeus. I've come down to meet with you. So I want to meet in your house today. And so the story of faith is sudden but slow. And it's, it's climbing up to the top of a sycamore tree and realizing that all the money and the jobs and the family and all the stuff that I went and got for myself, it still wasn't enough. And in the flailing of that faith, that crisis of identity, you come to the end of yourself and you hear Jesus say, I'm not up there, I'm down here. So come down here at the foot of the real tree, at the cross of Calvary. Come meet me. That's where the gospel is. But then, it doesn't stop there. It says that Zacchaeus goes and meets with Jesus at the table. And this ultimately is what we're really doing. It's not about the money. It's not that the rich will become poor or the poor will become rich. It's that all people realize that everything without Jesus is nothing. And Jesus is everything. And so I'm going to give everything I have to follow Jesus. To drop every net, to drop every offense, to drop every bitterness and pretense and favoritism, and I drop everything so that I might be at that beautiful table of Jesus. And that faith story isn't just once, it's always. Have you ever been a part of, of a ministry or a part of a family or a part of, of a faith walk, a mission trip where, you, where you're right there, right on the wave with Jesus, where your grace and faith is being met? Isn't it the only place you want to be in the first place? Wouldn't you give anything to be at that place? It's not about being rich or poor or smart or liberal or progressive. It's like, it's about being with Jesus. And he's not up there, he's down here with us. And so faith is this expression of, I'm just going to give everything that I possibly can because there's nothing worth not being at his table. I want to be at that place. And so ultimately, though, the point that I want to bring up is not just about the story of Zacchaeus. It's, it's the story of us. And this is the question I want to ask you. If Zacchaeus is a visible picture of what faith looks like when it meets grace, did Zacchaeus' faith story begin before or after Jesus showed up? Like, in other words, were Jesus and his disciples going from town to town, bringing the kingdom of God where it was needed, or joining the kingdom of God where it was already working? So the second table I want to look at today is in Luke chapter 10. If you'd go to me, and this is the table of the 72. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Let me ask you a question in the prayer that Jesus taught his church to pray. Is the focus of the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, to pray for the lost or for the found? In this verse right here that we just read, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Is he telling us to pray for the harvest or for the workers? We're called today not to pray for the lost, but to pray for ourselves. Because it's not that the harvest isn't ready, it's that we're not going. And so in the kingdom of God, we are not bringing God where he's needed. We're only joining him where he's already working. And so the good news to you and to me today in our calling of the harvest and our continued faith journey to leave everything we have because we found out that Jesus is everything is that we're not going anywhere Jesus isn't already being right now. And so the harvest here is, is a picture. It's not a picture of a factory, and it's not a picture of a test tube, right, or a lab. It's a picture of a harvest, that there's watering and sowing and seasons, but ultimately the people of God are not bringing anything into the harvest, but joining the harvest where it's already at. And so this is good news to you and me today. I don't know what you've been taught about evangelism or outreach or preaching the gospel, but let me just relieve you of ever having to feel or be told ever again that you need to sell the gospel to anyone. This scripture is telling us there is no selling of the gospel. The gospel is a harvest. It's not an argument. And it's already won. And the harvest is ready. It's the question of are the workers willing? Are we ready to go into the harvest? Because we are not called to sell anyone, but to share only the best news that we've ever known. And that's all that's expected of you. And isn't it good news to know that we are not selling, we are sharing. If I go back in time in my earlier faith, I would tell myself, don't argue with people. Nothing in the Bible is saying we're going to win people through apologetics. Like, we're here to give account for the hope that we've been called to. There's a little college pizza place called Mama Bears in Bloomington, and I would just stay up talking about Nietzsche, about these kids at 3 a.m. in the morning trying to argue this kid off of some cliff as if I'm the one who makes the harvest happen, as if I'm working in a factory, not in a field. It's a waste of time. Right? I would, um, I would, um, uh, where am I at here? Um, I would explain, I would explain like when I would go to do outreach through Campus Crusade for Christ's initiative uh, evangelism, and you go out there and you'd say, yes, God is good, but also you're a sinner needs grace, and all you need the propitiation, da, da, da. you have to get the whole entire curriculum down. It's like, well, but what's the faith step that's required of this person in front of me, not what's with the curriculum that I'm supposed to be bringing, right? The issue of, of working in a factory as opposed to a harvest would, uh, would require of me sometimes a fake voice. Have you ever heard the preacher voice before? Or I'm talking to my friend in a completely normal tone of voice, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is an evangelism time. I need to go ahead and get my speech ready. I want to tell you a, a few quick encouraging stories. Um, I had, um, was listening to um, a, a different church, um, uh, Bridgetown Church, actually, out, out in Portland, and 
a preacher was just talking about um, this very exact point. Uh, he talks about how um, there's, this, there's this class called Alpha. Alpha is a, uh, a group that um, many churches uh, have used, and it's been really, really productive in, in the last 20 years or so of just having a safe place for people to digest hard questions about Christianity. And so um, they would meet with Alpha for about eight weeks, and there'd be all sorts of people that would gather there. And the story that was shared was just talking about this lady who had her arms crossed the entire time, and um, they would discuss these things of faith, and nobody had to talk at all during any of it, and so she was quite silent until week seven or week eight. And, um, and week seven came around, and she said something along the lines of, I would like to share now. And uh, the leader was like, sure, we'd love to hear from you. This is a lady who had her arms crossed the whole entire time, and she said, about week five, you told us to pray a prayer. Do you remember what it was? I said, sure, I remember what it was. He said, she said, the prayer was simply this, to, to say, Jesus, if you're real, I want you to show me. It's a simple prayer. Jesus, if you're real, I want you to show me. And so I was just like bitter about it and mumbling under my breath about how stupid that was. You know what a weak thing that is to believe that Jesus is going to show himself, blah, 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 blah. Well, she came, came to the end of her tree. And she got home and she was brushing her teeth. And she said, well, Jesus, if you're real, show me you're real, you know. And she said just warmth just covered her body. She said it felt so much like home, in fact, that she found herself praying that same prayer five more times the exact next day and felt that same exact warmth and home come through her body just because of that name of Jesus. And so the good news is, is that in the harvest, we're not in a factory. It's not on you or on me. It's on him. And he hasn't, ta- he hasn't sent us to sell anything but to share And so the last table I want to look at today is in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. I think that it's through this perspective that instead of sharing the gospel, inviting friends to the table of Jesus, joining with God in seeing grace meet faith for small little Zacchaeuses at the top of their tree, just like us, that ultimately speaking, uh, the sharing of the gospel and the laboring in in, in the harvest field goes from awkward and essential to weary but worth it. And so it's not without a cost. It's not without discomfort. Like if it was easy, there would be more workers. The reason why the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few because the harvest is weary, but it is worth it. And so we're in Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to begin in verse 10 here. Um, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. It says, but the crowds learned about it and followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those that needed healing. The passage previous to this had just spoken about John the Baptist being beheaded, asking Jesus if he was the Messiah or if he should wait for someone else to come. Jesus' own cousin who leapt in the womb, birthed in a parallel story at the beginning of this book, has just been decapitated at the hands of the Romans. Meanwhile, as they move around, apparently like sheep among wolves, being provided for only at the step of their obedience, at each moment God was working it out for them, they're about to take their weekend, get a break. The danger, the risk, right? And the fatigue of ministry is wearing thin on these guys. And these disciples tell Jesus, 
let's go send them off to go get something to eat down the other way. And Jesus looks at these starving, scared disciples and says, I want you to give them something to eat. (laughs) So, it's late in the afternoon. The 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. It is something to be discussed. It's maybe not the main topic here, but in the teachings of rest and running, there is a rhythm of the Sabbath, the six and one, but our fatigue level cannot dictate our reference for obedience. Sometimes Jesus will ask us to do stuff when we're tired and we're not following him because our work is done or we're not following him because we have enough energy to do it. We're not following him because we have enough. We're following him because his voice is most important to us. And sometimes he'll tell us to work when we're tired and sometimes he'll tell us to rest when we're not. But the voice is the thing that dictates our metronome, not our fatigue level. Okay, so he says, they say, you know, we should send them out to a remote place. Verse 13, he replied to them, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. When he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, they ate and were satisfied, and all the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. Translation to this passage, God always works it out. The metronome for obedience is not if I'm tired or if I have enough, or if I know what to say, or if if the person's loud enough or urgent. The metronome of obedience is what is he saying to do? In every season, what is he saying to do? And here's what you and I both know and what the scripture is testifying to us. He always works it out. Doesn't he always work it out? Doesn't he always take five fish, right, and the loaves and multiply it to whatever it is that we need? Doesn't he, isn't he, isn't he faithful to always work it out as we share? And so this is the good news of the gospel. We do not work in a factory, but in a harvest. And so therefore, we're not bringing God anywhere. We're joining him wherever he's working And so the only responsibility that we have is to share what we have. I want to relieve you of any anxiety or angst or awkwardness that you don't have to force or spoon feed or argue anybody into faith. Your portion is simple, hard but simple. Even when you're tired, share what you have. So I was uh, reflecting today, uh, this week on this one season when I used to work at Starbucks on Woodruff Road. It was back when we only had two Starbucks. Oh, there's 30. Think about that, right, as an anecdote of time. And so um, we worked there on Woodruff Road, and me and Kyra, we were married at 21. We were ready to have a baby at 22. Boom, bam, just like that. I was actually on the phone at a Starbucks when Kyra called me on break and let me know that uh, our first child would be a little baby girl. And... Um, And so we were too dumb not to just believe everything in the gospel, just believe that he's everything. We were too dumb. We were too poor to afford anything other than that. So we just started this little Bible study with a couple of the baristas there, guys and gals, mostly younger. Nobody, um, not everybody went, but some of the people went. And the rule was we shared, you know, we shared. We shared the scriptures, we shared the food, we shared Nobody had a plan. Nobody was really the host of the guests. You just shared. You just showed up. And um, I always remember this, this little girl, Jillian. Um, she, uh, she worked there at the time as a barista with me. 
and she used to bring cinnamon buns. She couldn't say cinnamon for some reason. She's a 21-year-old girl, but she couldn't say cinnamon the right way. So that became kind of a mantra for us, like, are you going to bring the cinnamon buns? Because they were the best. Bring the cinnamon buns. You know, and she'd show up, and it was a great time. Nobody there was going to church. Nobody there had a ton of guile or walls or borders or, you know, a fence. Just showed up and, and read the scriptures, and nothing really fireworksy kind of happened. But halfway through, Jillian came to Christ in that group. And now Jillian's married with a Christian husband and has Christian kids that she's raising. And it wasn't without weariness and it wasn't without risk. Like there was another person, I won't mention their name, but they're just full of drama. You ever just have somebody showing up to small group just full of drama? Just like swerving all of the conversations into Dramaville. No, not Dramaville. We're talking about Matthew. You know, drama, 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 drama. Like so much drama. You know, it was just, you know, one at a stage. And then there was people that were like suspicious, right? It's not awkward and essential. It's worthy, but it's weary. It's tiring. And it involves this kind of sharing, right? But it's worth it. And I can really testify to you that. I look back on my life and gone a lot of great places and done a lot of great things, but I would say between the short period of time of being married and having a baby, that was my favorite season and favorite moment of me and Kyra's short pre-baby season. Because he always works it out. He always takes what we have, which is little, asks us to share it, which is not much, and makes it enough. And so we're not called as workers in a factory, we're called to laborers in harvest, to join with him where he is and to simply take a stranger to a neighbor through the vehicle of a name and turn neighbor into a friend with simple vehicle of invitation, come and see. I'm not the host and you're not the needy guest. I'm not in control. You're not in control either. We're joining here to see what Jesus might do because he always works it out. And so really, the fork in the road becomes for us as poor, middle class, or rich Christians. Do you want the control or do you want the harvest? Because you can't have both. In between charity and family is a momentous, uh, wearisome thing called friendship, which always comes with risk. But that's where the harvest lives. Probably five, ten years ago, you probably made five or ten thousand dollars less. And as we move our way up the ladder and move our way older in age, the assumption, and the gospel knows this and preaches about this, is that I'm going to use what I have to create the home to invite people into. And I'm, pre I'm preaching a message to you right now that I don't follow. Can I preach something for you to do that I don't do, that I don't practice? Is that oftentimes, then in building the home, we forget the harvest. That we have the table, but the table's empty. Because the table, instead of becoming a banquet, becomes a bunker. And, and, and that wealth, which could have been used and is used in the hands of Zacchaeus to do many great things, to share in the inheritance with, with, with Jesus, turns into denied invitations. Not this time from the guests, but from the host. What does the gospel always say? I'm going to bury my dad. I'm going to go marry this person. I'm going to go handle my affairs. I'm going to go get my career. And I build the house, but never go to the harvest. I never do friendship. And the thing that I miss in that place is that ultimately in the harvest, I can't really build the table that I'm inviting anybody to because it's not my table, it's his. 
And so the invitation is not come to my table, which I create, where I'm the noble host and you're the needy guest and I dictate the menu, the venue and the seating, right? But I'm inviting him to his table where I don't have the control and I don't know what you're gonna say and I don't know if you're gonna reject me and I don't know if you're just gonna give and not take and take and not give. I don't know, I don't have the control in my hands, but that's the question. Like you could have control or the harvest, but you cannot have both. We have to share in his table in this thing because we are not bringing God where he's needed. We are joining him where he's already working. And so the very last table I want to take us today is in, uh, in Luke chapter 9. Uh, oh, no. Let me find it. It's, it's the, the table of Martha and Mary. Somebody shout it off if you find it. I uh, messed myself up by not bringing my Bible up here. I think it's 12, maybe. Nope, nope, nope. Skirt. Bible quiz. I juked you. Uh, all right, Luke 10, verse 38. Final table. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted. She was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to do the work by myself? The wearisome work of lonely laboring. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. If the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, then the missing component of the harvest is not them, but us. And the greatest enemy to the harvest, again, is not philosophical dogmas, not political tensions, not a lack of money or lack of resources. It's distractions for preparing something that God's already prepared for us. It's once I get married. It's once I have enough money. It's once I have my timetables in order. It's once I get it figured out. Once I have my home built, then I'll go to the harvest. And he's going, I didn't call you to build a home. I called you to the harvest. Your preparation, your protection, and your provision live in the harvest. You know who else got fed on that hill with the 5,000? The disciples. You know where their food was coming from? My bread is not from Publix. It's to do the will of the Father. And when we pray for provision and we pray for protection, this is the place that we are to find it, not in waiting you know, for Jesus to do something he's done, but in joining him where he's already working. And so the greatest hindrance to our calling, to our finding home in the first place, is something as simple as distraction. He says, Martha, Martha, don't you know there's only one thing that's expected of you? The faith that finds that Jesus is in everything and so therefore gives everything to be at that table. Is there anywhere else you'd rather be than the table of Jesus? Is there anywhere else we're going to find protection and provision and power other than the table of Jesus? If it's out on a storm, if it's out on the water, if it's up with your neighbor, if it's having somebody over later than you want to be up, isn't that where the protection, the provision is in the first place? At the voice and at the word of Jesus? So Jesus would say, look up. Look up to the heavens. It's not that the harvest is, is scarce. It's the workers are scarce. It's not awkward and essential. It is worthy, yet weary, that he always, always, always takes care of it. And so I want to um, kind of recommend a book to you if you've never read it before on a practical level, wouldn't have time or the eloquence or honestly the practical know-how 
to explain to you how good this book is, but the, the gospel uh, comes with a house key is a, a book about um, a lesbian professor who actually came to Jesus through the table of another professor named Rosaria Butterfield. And um, through that, she came to Christ. She ended up marrying a pastor. And uh, the best parts about the book is uh, she calls herself an introvert. I don't know if you're an introvert here, and maybe these types of messages make you just itchy around the collar. She says, our personal profiles cannot prohibit us from our callings. Not everybody's called the 5,000, but we're all at least called the one. And so she talks about, and this is me too, I'm a loud introvert is what they call me, but she talks about that precious time. If it takes an hour and a half in the morning, the preparation, if it's anything, it's not about the doilies and the carpet and the, and the plates. It's in prayer, if there's any preparation. It's prayer. And so I loved her reading the Psalms. She, reads, she, has, she has predictable patterns of she reads the Psalms. It's showing up and sharing. It's not taking control, but it's showing up. And so even on the deathbed of her mother, she's only practicing the second and the, the, you know, the second nature that she had only taught herself to do when she wasn't in the middle of storms is to pray and to pray a lot. And so I like the practical advice. I like in this book about how she, she sets up her budget and her calendar that her kids do not do travel sports. And she has a whole entire cabinet of food that's just for the neighbor kids because she's ready to give an extra jacket to the person that shows up. In other words, there is a preparation to the thing, right? But it's just not ultimately the way that we define hospitality all the time. I love that she was, she was strong on love, but she's also strong on holiness, and she teaches about church, church um, discipline, and she teaches about holiness, and she talks about how hard conversations are part of the gospel, and part of the gospel is allowing the rich young ruler to you, saying something so offensive to them that they walk away, and you still count it worth it. There's a calculation in that. Will he show up, and will he do what he said that he'll do? And so I recommend that book, but ultimately, I just want to send us off with this quick, quick equipping, and um, I'm going to have uh, Kristen come forward to close us in prayer this morning along with worship, but uh, take a look at the screen here always asking three questions at the end of these messages, but first is the who. Luke says that when you go from town to town, don't bring a purse or a bag because he's going to provide what you need through a person of peace. And so you're not called to heal the world, make it a better place. You're called to the ready. You're called to somebody that God has already put in front of you. And so I'd ask you, this is a great strategy, like who is a person of peace to you? Who is somebody that would listen to you. And here's how you know if they're a person of peace, they're not only willing to listen to you, but they're interested in a mutual give and take relationship. There's plenty of people that will take handouts, but people that are ready for the gospel are ready to give and to receive. So what does it look like not to be codependent, but to the call to the great commission? Who is a person of peace in your life? Because any, any minute that you spend with somebody that's not ready is also not spending time with somebody that is ready. And we are not called to the urgent and every beck and call on every need that goes on in society, right? We are called to the harvest, which is a person of peace. The secondly, thing I want to ask you is, what do you have to share? What do you have to share? Friendship looks like giving and taking. So here's a list of some ideas I had for you. But in this season, LeBron has 16 more seasons, whatever. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. He's probably pretty old. But athletes have a certain amount of seasons and seasons of friendship. We do family well because it's high commitment, but seasons of friendship. It's okay to just be friends, to have hospitality, invite somebody over. You don't have to be besties with everybody. And what does it look like to see friendships be mutual? What does it look like a book club or train for a race with somebody for a couple of weeks, lunch with a teacher if you're a teacher and just say, hey, through Thanksgiving, I'm just gonna hang out and you know, make that intentional. Going to this gym or lunch at the same exact time with the same exact people, going on a weekly walk with somebody that you know, 
a play date with the kids. These, these are, are planned and intentional rhythms that we could potentially be putting into our weeks because we only have so many six-month seasons that we have, and any moment that we're spending with somebody that's not ready, we are not spending with somebody that is ready. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so go to the harvest, is what he says. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 